This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 168. My guest is Liontown Resources CEO, Tony Ottaviano. I have probably never had a better timed episode. I visited Kathleen Valley the day before we recorded this, but as I was flying to Australia, Albemarle put in yet another bid for Liontown. We will talk about that during this episode. We don't belabor it, but for those of you who want a spoiler alert, it is in there. I always enjoy speaking with Tony. He is articulate and thoughtful in his answers. We recorded in Liontown's offices, and for me, after spending time at site, seeing the chemistry of the people there, and then going into the offices. And a shout-out to Sean for arranging this and Ashley for her help. I was impressed by what Liontown has going on throughout their organization. And I think it would be a great boon for Albemarle if they were to uh, acquire this. But in any case, whether Liontown stays as Liontown now or they're acquired or they're acquired by someone else. Tony has built a great organization, in my opinion. I look forward to seeing them move this project ahead. One final comment, just to be clear, I have never been compensated in any manner, shape, or form by the Liontown organization. I'm not a consultant or an advisor to them. There were some rumors about that because of the timing. Without further ado, Tony Ottaviano. Tony Ottaviano. Welcome back to the Global Lithium Podcast. Thanks for having me, Joe. Really appreciate you coming to Perth and seeing firsthand what we've been able to achieve in the time frame since we last spoke. It's always a pleasure to come to Perth. It was more of a pleasure to get on a plane yesterday at zero dark, 6 a.m. and fly up to um, Kathleen Valley. When we talked 15 months ago, you talked to me about your aspirations and what you wanted to do. I saw the end result or the in-process results yesterday. I've looked at a lot of lithium projects over the years. I think what you've done both from the build I saw and the culture were very impressive. Do you want to give me your thoughts on your journey over the last 15 months? Well, thank you for that feedback. I am tremendously proud of my team. The job's not done yet, but what we've been able to deliver I think will speak for itself. Seeing is believing. And when I spoke to you 15 months ago, it was important for me to tell you what my aspiration is and what I believed my key objectives are. And we spoke everything from, you know, at the moment my primary focus is on, you know, getting the project up and running, securing the contracts and, and starting the build. 
but there are other volumes in my buttons that I need to turn up as we move towards first production. And a lot of that is building the team, the operations team, and then building the culture that I want to take this company forward with. But that doesn't start the moment we turn on the plant and start production. I wanted that culture while we're building the plant. And one of the key things that I look at is I want people to come to work with a sense of purpose and then leave with a sense of accomplishment. And I think we're getting it. What I saw would tell me that you are correct in your assumption. I don't believe that if you're around people for a day, you can fake a culture. What I was most impressed by, and you talked the last time, you were the only guy in all the podcasts I've ever done to talk about documentation. And I think the practical reality of that attitude is that I saw so much attention to detail yesterday in just how, as we were driving around different parts, people pointing things out, you can tell from housekeeping, you can tell from little things whether people are walking the talk. Yeah. So that, that would be feedback I would give you that I think you've been very much successful in that regard. When we talked last time, though, it was we were still in a phase where you were having challenges just getting the people yes. to, to do this. Yes. You have a Western Australia, there's a lot of projects going on. It seemed to me from the guys I talked to yesterday and women I talked to yesterday that you've got the right people in place to build this thing. And that was what Kirit pointed out to me, like, yeah, I'm here to build it, and then somebody else is going to run it. But the thought processes just all seem to be aligned. Yes. And, and, I, and thank you for that feedback. And, and I've made a point around I don't want to start – this culture of can do when we start operations. I wanted it to be alive and functioning from the get-go. And to me, finding the people, that's a very good question. I often get asked that question in the WA environment. But it comes down to what is your value proposition? What do you stand for as a company? And do you back it up? all well and good doing the glossy brochures, the, the social media and all the rest of it. But once people come on board, what's their onboarding experience? Are we providing that onboarding experience in the most efficient and welcoming approach? Then you bring them onto site, have what we've said and promised being delivered. You know, we have a view about how quickly you should be able to get your email address, your laptop and be ready for work. So those things mean a lot. They're symbols, right? Their beliefs and their behaviours. That's, and I've got to back it up with action. Speaking of symbols, one of the most impressive things to me, and it sounds like fluff. Your camp is constructed in the shape of a dragonfly, and as I walk through it, I was told that, and you can't really appreciate it unless you see it from above. And I was provided that opportunity to see it from above. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came to be and what the importance is and how that relates to your relationship with the Jalal people? Mm. I'm glad you've asked this question. Um, 
November 17th, 2021, we signed the native title agreement with the Jawal. A lot of the investment community and stakeholders, they tend to focus on the Tesla deal or the Ford deal as the, you know, the special moments. But as a management team and as a board, signing that native title agreement was probably the most profound moments of my career. Because I knew and the team knew that unless we had a genuine partnership, and it was very robustly negotiated, no question, we all had to compromise in the end. It was important that we have that and, and we continue to have that. We've set a benchmark that we believe is, is the right thing to do. And I'll give you an example. When we got our last permit to clear, the first contractor on site to clear the land to start the build was Jawal, a Jawal contracting company run by the chairman of Jawal, Brett Lewis. The first blast in our pit was done by the brother of one of the board members of Jawal. The construction across Jones Creek, which is very symbolic, has been done with Jawal monitors to make sure we are sympathetic to the environment, which we would be anyway, but we welcome them. And the dragonfly symbol is another sign of respect. How was that received when they knew you were you were constructing the camp in a fashion that made it much more difficult? To, Expensive, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, they were taken back. Again, it was a symbol for us. We didn't have to do that, but we did it with their consultation, and they know how important the dragonfly is to their storyline around Jones Creek and the importance it has in the storytelling, and we felt that it was the appropriate thing to do. One of the things that, in the discussions I had with various people over the course of the day, is you all came up a lot. And it was always in a positive, doing as much business with Jawal companies as, as makes sense. Well, you saw the telecommunication tower, which is built by and owned by a Jawal contracting company. And, and that really goes to my point, is that... Uh, a lot of times when you have those kind of situations, people will kind of roll their eyes and say, like, you know, we have to do this. But everybody was super positive about the fact they were happy. And they said the Jawal are just naturally pretty good at business anyway. And yeah. they were very entrepreneurial. So yes. this is like win-win. Yes. Because you're benefiting from the fact they're getting stuff done. And it isn't a drag on the project. It's actually an enhancement. That, yes. that was my perception. Yes. And, um, and I think... Um, that's just one aspect of the uh, the value proposition that we're trying to uh, put forward so that we can attract people of all walks of life to our company. You know, the Jawal commitment and action is one example. That's the social element of ESG. The E element, which you saw firsthand, was to build this 95 megawatt hybrid renewable power farm, right? And the wind turbines are going to be an absolute feature of engineering. I was really almost taken aback by the scale those things are going to be. Mm. I saw them getting ready to do the first pour that's 
started last night at 10 p.m. and I guess goes for 32 or 36 hours. I can't remember the exact number. But it just was, this is amazing. And I guess you're not going to be necessarily self-sufficient, but you're going to have a, such a good mix with the way you've done the deal yes. that it it isn't um, virtue signaling ESG is practical ESG that yes. renewables are, are, it's a real thing for you. It is. And unlike others that may have the benefit of being able to tap into a pre-existing hydro system or um, renewable system that's been there for years, we've had to create something out of nothing in order to give us that 60% renewable day one. So it was a genuine and deliberate strategy. The other thing, and I'll ask the listeners to forgive me for not getting into specific stuff that I usually would talk about, whether it's grade and execution and metrics you're used to, but more of the impressive things to me was the way you've paid attention to detail on creating rooms that people are going to want to stay in and a gym that is actually a real gym and food services. And it's, you're, you have to run a, a small town up there. Yeah. And, uh, is that something that you feel differentiates your project or is it, is that a baseline now you just have to do that? Do you think you've gone beyond that's a very good question. I think it's a little bit of both. There is now a higher level of expectation to attract people to a FIFO environment around the standard of accommodation. But there are levels. Right? We didn't want to go entry level. But equally, a company of our size couldn't afford the all singing, all dancing being proposed by others, you know. We don't have an Olympic-sized swimming pool because we, from experience, mine including, they typically never used, right? And, and there are other features. What mass matters in an accommodation facility, from our experience, is good food, good Wi-Fi, and a nice pillow and, and mattress. You know, I actually did ask about the mattresses. <laughs> Kira took us into his room because he hadn't arranged for us to see like a, a showroom. So yeah, yeah. Um, we actually saw a real room that was being used. And, and it was impressive. And I, I don't want to overplay this, but to me, the happier people are when they're working, the better they're going to work. Correct. Correct. Look, I, I do want to say one more thing. Um, whilst we're, we're focused on those intangibles to make it the value proposition, as I keep saying, the right one. There also is a, an absolute laser focus on high-quality execution. I don't want to, the listeners to feel as if we're all focused on the, the nice stuff, but we're not focused on what we need to do. We are very much focused on what we need to do. And you could see how orderly and structured the, the plant site was, but e equally the pits. We spent a lot of time making sure housekeeping in the pit and productivity in the pit is where it should be. Well, let's let's talk about what you've physically built. It has nothing to do with lifestyle. Hmm. I was impressed at the scale of the operation. It was bigger than I expected. 
And I was impressed that everybody that talked to me about what was going on seemed incredibly knowledgeable about what had to happen next and staying on plan. Last time we talked, you said something about in developing the culture, you've got to do it and then you get it. I think we're your mm-hmm. exact words. And uh, I know they were because I listened to that podcast episode this morning when I was out wandering around Perth. Tell me a little bit more about how you keep people on task and what tools you're using to make sure that you are powering to production. Hmm. Um, gee, I could talk all day about this. This is something I'm, I'm very passionate about. Look, I think there's a couple of ways. Um, there's the empowerment of the leaders and the people right, to get on with things. And I've spoken about the importance of empowerment and what that means. And an old boss used to tell me about what his definition of empowerment was when he walked his dog along the beach. He said, Tony, is your, your idea of empowerment just a longer lead for your dog so they can run around and have a bit more freedom? Or is it no lead? Right? And I had to think about that, Joe. Right? But I acknowledge that the people on site, the people right in the action, need to have a certain amount of scope and responsibility and accountability to make decisions there and then. And that's what we've been able to do. Well, when we talked 15 months ago, you talked about empowerment didn't mean, and this isn't an exact quote, it didn't mean within this box you're empowered. Yes. I think that's the way you phrased yes. that. Yes. How have you made that actually happen? Because it's easy to say that, yes. but it's much harder to do it. Yeah, it is. And I think, um, how do we make it happen? Well, it's it's through doing. Um, you say it, but then you've got to follow it up. And I think that this we wouldn't have got to where we've gone. And we've still got more to, to do. So let's not forget that the next uh, eight to nine months will be some heavy lifting. But I think we've got the right balance between me over-managing and reaching in too deeply, but also the team understanding the clear objectives. They know where first tons needs to happen. They know what to build. They, they've got my expectations around quality, housekeeping, safety, all that stuff, right? And you saw it firsthand. We're not building a plant that's been cobbled together that's got a, you know, a lot of Chinese parts or anything. We're built to last. We're built to for high wear rates, and we haven't gold-plated. Well, clearly where the flotation is going is built to last. Yeah. <laughs> I was... The I mushrooms. Was, I was literally shocked when I saw that. Because yeah. I've, I've seen flotation before, and it, it didn't look like that. Yeah. And uh, But that's prim- the primary reason for that design is maintainability and operability. Right? We know there's if, it, if there is a spillage and everything, you need to put the bobcat through there and push things into the sh- sump. But if you've got cross members everywhere, it becomes a nightmare. People have to get in there with hoses. So we've designed that within, with our um, maintainability and operability front of mind. When we last spoke, you talked a little bit about the fact that you didn't feel that what you were trying to accomplish was going to be outside of what you could reasonably expect to do in terms of making spodumene concentrate. That it wasn't super complicated. Do you still feel that way? 
Mm. I do not want to understate how difficult it is to start one of these plants up. The track record of a number of my competitors would indicate that is the case. So we're going into the ramp up and first production with eyes wide open. We know that the first six to 12 months, we're not going to get the recoveries that people think we are. So we've factored that into our planning. We know we're not going to get the throughput right up front, and we've factored that in. We know that for the first six to 12 months, because we're not at full production, we can't amortise the fixed cost on our cost base to the same extent if we were. So we're going to get higher unit costs. So all those things we're sort of putting in. We're putting a lot of focus on operational readiness, recruiting the operational people ahead of time, which everyone tends to do and say they do, but we've got a, a very good plan. We've got business readiness. This is where my document control system comes in. And all this sort of stuff, I can tell you right now from my phone exactly where the project is, what cost we're doing, where we are in our operational readiness and everything, all on a touch of my phone. One of the things that impressed me yesterday when you're trying to do one of these projects, the, in my mind, one of the best things you can have is people who have done it elsewhere mm. and have learned from mistakes elsewhere. Mm. You've got people that have been at a lot of different projects. Yes. Was that... Deliberate? In, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we didn't poach, if that's what people no, think. No, I, I, I wasn't it was, They voluntarily applied to the um, ads we put in, but I'm glad they've come for all the reasons I've mentioned previously as to why. But you're absolutely right. One of the, you know, a simple learning that we've managed to get the benefit of by having these people that have worked in other operations is the ROM pad. And sheeting the ROM pad with low-grade material so that when, you're, uh, when you are blending the ore on the ROM pad before it goes into the crusher and then into the mill, you're not picking up with the front-end loader base dirt causing problems in your flotation circuit, right? You're actually taking more material. So we're sheeting the ROM pad with a metre to a metre and a bit of low-grade pigmentite. What other benefits is your team is bringing new people in and bringing them up to speed? The learnings you get from elsewhere, and then how do you capture and make institutional knowledge. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Yesterday, we're, as we're driving around, Kirit, sorry, Kirit, if I butchered your name, but um, That's fun. he saw something that wasn't quite right. And even though he's got me, he's just trying to make a time schedule so I can get back and get on the plane, he stops and he goes and talks to two guys. Yeah. And it's not a, it's not a, Gotcha, yeah. but it's clearly that's the way he operates. Yes. How do you maintain that, and how do you continue the process? What kind of, in your documentation, or however you mm. get people to internalize that part of your culture? Um, look, 
in construction, while you're in construction, a lot of that is um, the work and the, the the way of approaching it is done sort of on the run. However, as we move into operations, it's around systems, processes, and leadership. And I'll explain this in a minute. How do we institutionalize it? Well, the documentation needs to be readily accessible, accurate, and written by the people who do the work. And that's what we're doing. Once the, the documentation gets put into practice, it needs to be improved because people learn and they need to then put those learnings back into the documentation to make them better. Right? That's really where I was going. How do you, how do you create the virtuous circle? Where yeah, you, the PDCA you, you cycle. That. Yeah. So um, there are uh, methodologies that we will adopt, you know, that I've seen um, adopted in other companies around the world, an operating system, a way of working. And there's things like leader's standard work. There are certain things that the leader must do in the course of the day. Time in field. And the time in field is not just simply checking and gotcha. Time in field has got to be training. You know, look, you've got this... You're doing this particular work. How can we improve it? And continually working with the team. Now, how do I institutionalize this? There will be parts in my um, in our systems and processes that will document the requirement for leaders to spend a certain amount of time in the field. And that time in field will depend on where you are in the hierarchy. A supervisor, a lot of time in field. Superintendent, a little less. Right up to me, there's an expectation of how much time I spend in the field. And when I go in the field, it always has to be a teaching and learning exercise. And I've got documentation and other bits and pieces that we do that will document my standard work. I guess where I, I want to just extend that conversation a little bit. So, Kirik, okay, he's, he's good at it. How do you make sure the guy's two levels down for him? Are doing it, and then how do you know from where yeah. you're sitting? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. Good. So when I so let's start with the last piece first. One of my key roles when I go to site, it's not just industrial tourism that I go around, press a bit of flesh, come back. I have to be put to work, and I put I get put to work by doing what I call uh, part of this leader standard work, a layered audit. So we will take a a procedure or a a work instruction. And I will sit through with one of those people, with their supervisor, and work through that together. Right? So I understand how they're doing the work. I can teach. I can coach. They can t teach me. Right? And that exercise gets done on a regular basis. And, and I hope that I can get my board to do some of this when they come to site. Put them to work. I used to do the same thing. If people wrote, wrote a procedure that I had to be able to to do their task yeah. based on what they wrote. And yeah. if I couldn't, then I said, well, maybe I'm not smart enough to do this, but yes. you need to figure out how to communicate it. To, it to exactly. Yeah. And, and then there's a, um, you know, they've got to work as a team and people will support what they create. If that procedure and that work instruction is not created by the people doing the work, it's some idiot in head office that's written this, 
I don't care. And I won't hold my fellow colleague to account on that because we have no ownership over it. Okay, so you're in the middle of a build right now, but very soon, probably sooner than it'll, it'll come up on you very quickly, you'll be operating. What are you doing now to ensure that when the handover goes to operations, that goes smoothly? So it comes down to this operational readiness. So we're recruiting the operational. We need to recruit 30 people a month between now and first production. Um, we're, so the operational readiness team is being built now, and then they will be involved in the commissioning. So the people that are going to run the plant are going to commission the plant with the engineers. The second piece is this business readiness. Right? So I have a team 100% uh, focused on making sure that the infrastructure required to successfully start up and operate is in place day one. Everything from our enterprise uh, system, our standard reports, how the data is being captured. Everyone says what you can't measure, you can't control. But the other side of that coin is not everything you measure matters, right? So we've got to make sure that the right information is being presented to the leadership. And, and we've got all the first fields, the whole thing that require for that ongoing maintenance. Our maintenance system, spares, uh, our inventory management, all that's being done now as part of the business readiness. You have supply contracts with some blue chip customers. There's a lot of angst out there from the OEMs to the battery guys on down about supply. How are you now, even though you're not going to be in production of spot cotton until next year, how are your customers keeping tabs on your readiness to supply them? Yes, good question. Um, there are a couple of points I'll make. There are contractual requirements under our offtake agreements that we need to provide our customers with evidence of how the project is progressing. So that's done on a quarterly basis. But we've also had them come to site so they can see what we've told them is happening is actually happening. So we have a number of scheduled visits. Now, LG have been to site and seen firsthand. Tesla are coming out later this month themselves, right? and Ford will follow. So the customers are very much part of the build and the, and the ultimate startup um, through those two approaches. How do you encourage your employees to make that a learning situation, not just a, we got these guys coming, we just want to run them through and send them on their way? Yeah. Um, to be honest, I don't have a response for that. I have to think about it. Okay. That's a good suggestion. Yeah, I, just, I mean, it's fair enough because your customers have been at everybody else's operation and there's mm. things they look for. And to the extent that maybe you're not doing something they're expecting, it's... Yeah, I think that's a very good suggestion. I mean, we, we've been very open with our customers that we want feedback. 
So this may be a, a good opportunity. Yeah, okay. Good suggestion. With the most specialized team of lithium brine professionals in the world, Zalandis is dedicated to providing exceptional customer service and support throughout every stage of lithium brine field development and production. From the Atacama to Ombre Muerto to the USA and Canada, go to Zalandez.com for more information. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z.com. What do you think the, as you look out to getting into your first shipment, what do you think the biggest challenges are? You asked me that uh, in our first discussion. Um, I think to some extent the same apply now. Um, schedule and that you know, maniacal focus on the schedule. Um, onboarding our people, right? getting the people on board. Um, and you know, as I said, 30 people a month that we've got to recruit. And then and finally, um, that sort of operational readiness in getting that um, you know, on track and ahead of time. Um, but I think all in all, we've got something we believe in. A culture is starting to emerge. And you know, I want to bed that down. I want to, this secret sauce that I think we're creating, I, I, I want to bottle it. I want to be able to, um, you know, the new employees that come on board, they immerse themselves in it and they continue this. Change gears a little bit here. We've been talking for a half an hour and I know most of the people who are very interested in where Lion Town's going want to hear about the Avalmarle deal or if they're the status. Let's just let's just throw it out that way. Okay. Look, there's a couple of points I want to make there. Um, firstly, you know, the approach by the world's largest lithium producer um, for, on our asset is vindication to some extent and validation of the tremendous job we've done. It's it's a it's a tick in the box for the quality of the asset. It's a tick in the box in, in what we're doing, right? And it's a tick in the box on the strategy that we've adopted. You know, the focus on the blue chip customers, the diversity by geography, the diversity by position on the value chain. So that to me is, you know, a pretty proud moment. The second thing is um, we've had limited interaction with Albemarle, other than principle to principle during um, the various approaches. It's only recently that I've managed to, to just have a brief discussion with a couple of the Albemarle people. So from what I've been able to ascertain, they have been respectful. They're very cognizant of what we're trying to do. And they want to do what they have to do in a way that will not impede or in any way put to some form of detriment the timeline and what we need to do. So that's what I've seen so far. Your win's their win if this deal goes through. So I, that, that makes perfect sense to me. I guess you have built a very strong and cohesive team from what I can see. How are you handling, you know you've got a team that's a, they don't know Albemarle, they don't know Albemarle people. And if Avalmarle comes in, there's got to be some uncertainty 
created at a really critical time in your build. How are you personally dealing with making your guys feel like this is going to be fine either way? Yeah, yeah. Look, there's a couple of ways um, that I'll respond to that. Albemarle have made it quite public that the WA labour market is very tight and they want to build knowledge and understanding in mining. So they want to, um, they want to keep the team. They've made that clear. And they see this as a foundational move in order for them to get more experience in the mining sector. I think Kent mentioned that in his webcast the other day. The second thing is, if I'm a young process engineer working at um, Liontown in the processing facility and I've got aspirations to get further knowledge and understanding in the area of uh, the battery value chain, a potential owner, and we've got a lot of wood to chop between now and this finally going through, but a potential owner like Albemarle that has downstream processing and sophisticated chemical processing and potentially other forms of lithium in the brines, to a young engineer, male or female, there is a lot of potential there than a single asset. So um, I see that as a positive for the up-and-coming. So to me, there's, um, there are benefits that the employees see, and, and providing they can get that comfort that you know they still have a job day two, which is, Albemarle made it clear they do want to keep the people, then I think it's fine. Oh, I don't think Albemarle has, really has a choice in yeah. this market yeah. other than th they're benefiting. They're, they're getting a, a team of highly competent people. They, they may decide to move people around as opportunities. Yeah. This creates opportunities for everybody, potentially. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make this as a negative statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, there is an emotional thing because once you have a team yes. and you have a way of doing things, yes. you, you kind of worry about... Who's going to tinker with... Yeah, and, and, and you know, is the decision-making process going to be as quick as what I've experienced today? To, you know, what process and, and um, impediments and, you know... I've often said to the team, process is not the enemy. Too much process is the enemy, or badly written process can be a detriment. So, you know, they're all wondering, you know, am we gonna, are we going to get a bureaucracy? Are we going to get this? Are we going to get that? Yeah, look, it breeds a little bit of uncertainty, but I think we just have to play that through. Fair enough. Good answer. We, we, we've dealt with that issue. Let's <laughs> go back to your customers for a minute. We've seen the market change since we last talked. There's mm -hmm. a lot more emphasis now. You've got... In order to get EVs to the masses, you're probably going to have a different mix of cathode than what people were thinking two years ago or yes. 15 months ago. That may have changes your competitors in WA kind of want to all in for hydroxide. That might not have been the, the best decision long term. And obviously anything you can make, you can sell right now. Hmm. But when you look at whether you... We, we talked about getting into processing last time as part of your long-term yeah. strategy. Yeah. How are you looking at that now as opposed to how you looked at it 15 months ago? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, look, I've been public in, in saying that there's a threshold question that I need to answer for the management team and for the board and ultimately the shareholders as to whether it makes sense for a miner to 
to to go downstream. It seems quite acceptable for a downstream processor to go upstream and own the resource. But you know, economically, does it make sense that a miner progresses down the value chain? Because conventional wisdom in mining is the, the most margins should accrue at the point of first saleable product. So if I had a spare $2 billion, do I buy another spodumene mine and continue to produce spodumene? Or do I invest it in refining? So that's a question we're prosecuting right at the moment. But assume it's yes. Then the next question I have to ask myself is, what's the product? Absolutely. Yeah. And I've spoken about, you know, is there a play around an intermediary product? And a number of my competitors are toying with that. Is it sulfate? Is it phosphate? Or especially sitting here in Western Australia, or do I go all the way to a final product like a hydroxide? And, and where in China, a lot of the sophisticated plants there, as you would know, have that optionality. Those plants can do, produce hydroxide or they can produce carbonate, or both. Right? That's correct. Yeah. And so they've got to bet each way. Unfortunately, the capital costs here are so much higher. That's that. right. You're, you, you don't really have the degrees of freedom in WA. No, to, I don't. Do and, and then the, th- the last piece is, do I build it here or do I build it overseas? And then you overlay the IRA, um, and that has a bearing on it. But even more so, Joe, we're now seeing governments in provide and intervene into the whole business case that in a way that's been unprecedented. When you've got the Japanese government or the US government offering incentives, that changes the economics. The Canadian government as well. So all that, it's not a simple, let's, let's build refining. Let's talk about Japan for a minute because everybody seems fixated on Abelmarl, but you have had some discussions with Sumitomo, as I understand. Mm. And Japan wants to make Japan great again. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Yes. And when I started out, they had all of it. Yes. They were the battery guys. Yeah, and Panasonic. They, yeah. They, they have seeded that. And even, even going back to Sony, and Sony's not even in the business now. Yes. But you do see that interest now. Yeah. And that, I like, when I heard that, I was excited about that. Because I, of my time in Japan, I, I do want Japan to be great again. Um, but what's your, what's your perspective on... You, know, you got the Apple Moral discussion, and you got the Sumitomo discussion, then how do you play that? Yeah. Well, look, let's talk about the Sumitomo um, partnership. I mean, if I go back a bit, I've had a lot of experience working with Japanese trading houses and, and Japanese industry, and I respect immensely how they look at a problem or an opportunity in such a long-term view, right? And given that, Sumitomo was the perfect partner because they've got tremendous long history of trading commodities. But they're also in mining and they're also in refining. So all that experience comes to bear. And then we have a national, one of many national champions in Japan that if we decide to build something in Japan, they can help us navigate the political system and the environmental system and the approval system. In Japan but while we're doing the study together they bring all that insight that market insight into our thinking 
So, for me, there was the Japanese angle. The Koreans are equally getting a, a significant presence in the battery value chain. So we're also keeping an eye there. And one of our competitors, you know, is very close to the Koreans through POSCO. Yeah. So that's another space we're watching very carefully. And there could be a bet in a number of jurisdictions. Let me ask you now about, there seems to be so much angst about the market, especially in Australia. Mm. And my perspective is, even though spodumene prices come down, it's still, mm. by historical standards, mm. people couldn't have imagined $3,500 spodumene <laughs> four years ago. And yeah. now people are complaining about yes. $3,500 spodumene. Yeah. We talked a little bit about this last time, but how are you thinking about that? And you know what? what's your core outlook for where that's going? Look, I... I did a slide on this in our um, in my presentation at the Diggers and Dealers Conference early August. And when people provide a supply and demand view, as you know, it's always over that sort of 10, 15 year view in which the trend is, is great, fantastic. But no one, the investment community, they all say that's interesting, but what's going to happen in the next two to three years, right? So I said, well, okay, let's do a, a, a micro analysis of the next two to three years. I want to see what happens. And it was interesting insight, Joe. From what I was able to analyse through some work that we did is we, we saw that there's 42 projects need to come on stream in the next three years. They need to be executed flawlessly 50% of those projects are outside IRA compliant jurisdictions. And furthermore, most of those are greenfields. They're not brownfields, they're an expansion to an existing plant. They are brand new greenfield projects. I just cannot see it. When you were doing that work and you looked at 2023, how many new projects were starting up in 2023? Yeah, none. Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> I think you've got your answer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to me, to me, um, uh, supply will be harder to come on than people think, and we know the demand. Um, if there is a a drop in prices, which I don't believe, I'm still a strong believer that in the in the medium to longer term prices will stay high. It won't be a supply driven issue. It'll be more a demand piece, right? You know, there might be a recession. Everyone's panicking about recession or the rest of it. But I saw just today car sales, EV sales in China are, are strong. Yeah, they're very strong. And you've got, if you look at the gigawatt hours produced through August, mm. it's a big number. Yeah. When you look at, I've, I've got the Korea statistics through July this morning. I got the Japan statistics through July. The price of lithium carbonate in Japan average year to date $62 a kilo. Yeah. And it went up from June to July. It did not Interesting. go down. Interesting. Korea is similar, but in Korea, hydroxide's higher because of 
Tesla's long-term deals in Japan, their the hydroxide price is twenty dollars below yes. carbonate. But the narrative out there is that prices is just at thirty because that's what the China spot is. And yeah. we've always had two marketers. China I and, love it. and everywhere You're absolutely else. spot on. And another piece of information I did for a presentation I'm making tomorrow in town, it shows spodumene shipments to China. And if you compare and contrast what in this data tracks perfectly with what Shanghai Metal Market says, and I, they're not my favorite source of info, but I have to double check. The average price of spodumene from Australia is 4,400-ish yeah. this year. Yeah. It isn't what the PRA say spot is. Yes. And if you then bring in Brazil to China and Africa to China, those numbers come, the price comes down, but it's still at four. Yes. So what's the problem? I don't really understand all the angst. And as long as lapidolite is coming in to be a relatively significant part of the market, that the price umbrella... That's perfect. Okay, I, I know. I'm preaching to the choir, I think. But no, no, I absolutely <laughs> agree. And, and I, again, I've, I've been on record as saying is I'm starting to see some similarities with this lapidolite coming in this that it's going to create the shoulder in the cost curve. Right? And we saw this in iron ore, an industry I've worked in for a long period of time, where the Chinese domestic producers would keep the price of iron ore in and around $100 constantly because anything below that for a long period of time, they would close. So the, the iron ore industry has this sort of natural flaw that we've seen for the best part of a decade. And I can see lipidolites potentially doing the same. I think lipidolite's a great thing for you guys. Mm. Because it, it, as long as you have the high part of the cost curve, and, and still, if, as long as spodumene stays in the threes, yeah. lipidolite's not the top of the cost curve. It's the independent converter who's buying spodumene for three. And, yeah, yeah. and now it's closer to 45 or five to convert it to battery quality. Yeah. Now people like to use to say 2,500. Well, yeah, yeah, those, no. those days are gone. Well, yeah. Just an interesting thing, but as I walk around town here and meet people, everybody wants to talk to me about price. And I said, the price never should have gone to eighty thousand when when Spod was selling for five thousand a ton. Yeah, look at where the real cost curve was, and then the Chinese panicked and bid it up. Yes, to a crazy level, and yeah. there wasn't that much volume that moved at that price anyway. No, no. So okay, I'll get off the soapbox, but. We've gone longer than I thought you probably wanted to here, so I'll, I, I'll do what I did last time and say, what didn't I ask you that I should have asked you? No, I think you've been pretty comprehensive. Um, yeah, I think that um, where to next, maybe? And my answer to that question would be the focus is very much on, you know, mid-next year, July, for first production, um, a successful commissioning and ramp-up, and building out the team, right? Um, so that's how I see it. All right, I actually do have one more question because I've asked several lithium CEOs in different jurisdictions. And for you, I'll ask the question. If you look at Albemarle's number for 2030, it's 3.7 million tons of LCD. That's a huge number. As we sat last year, we were at about 700,000 tons of demand and about that much supply, a little less. What do you think peak LCE is in Australia? 
between now and 2030. How much can you bring out? You're, this year it'll be around 400,000 tons of LCE, not, not concentrated. Yeah, yeah. So thinking <laughs> about these 42 projects or yeah. however you want to parse the number, what do you think Australia can do? The highest number I've heard is 1.5 million tons of LCE between now and 2030. The average cluster is one, 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 two. Yeah, so and that's a huge. I mean, that's that's a huge number between. Yeah, now it and turns now. on three things in my view: the the Australian output. You know, you've got the green bushes expansions, right, and, and they're going to produce 2.2, 2.5 million tons of kind, right. You've got um, Pilbara's ambitions. They've just increased the size of their resource and reserves. So there's a lot of a lot of fuel in that tank. So they've publicly talked about P1000. And, and there's potentially upside on that, clearly. And then you've got other covalents and that Mount Holland deposit, that's got a lot of upside in it too. That's a, a resource bigger than, um, than, uh, than Kathleen Valley. And then you've got the MRL stuff. So given all that and the amount of brownfield expansion potential there is in Australia, you know, a number greater than a million LCE is probably within reach. And that would get us a third of the way there, right? <laughs> because if yeah. you look at you look at South America, they're not gonna they're not gonna catch you, no, anytime soon. soon. And if you don't have some DLE magic bullet happen in the next <laughs> five to ten years, uh, it looks like a good party for you guys. Yeah, going forward. Yeah, yeah, that's my view. I only have one rapid fire question for mm. you. When you go to site. Mm. Is it a four and twenty pie, or is it Mrs. Mac? Mrs. Mac. Uh, I understand the lamb chops are pretty good on site too, but well, I'm glad, Joe, you've had the opportunity to eat a quintessential Australian cuisine, the meat pie, lovingly prepared by Curate because he didn't microwave it; he put it in the little heater there for three hours. Which right. I understand is the proper way to do it. You yes. probably don't need three hours, but yes, he yeah. did. But what I will tell you is, every state has its own unique derivation of the meat pie. Right? Well, I guess I got some work to do. You do, and where I would recommend is South Australia and Victoria, especially South Australia, have a version which they call the pie floater, and it's a pie on a base of mushy peas. Now, you might think that sounds ghastly, but it is bloody nice. All right, so I'll recommend it to you. I'm actually going to ask you one more question. What's the last book you read? um, The Vault Rush. Oh, Henry. Yes. Okay. Shout out to Henry Sanderson. You're you're everywhere, buddy. (laughs) Tony, thanks a lot for your time. I appreciate it. It was great to catch up. Likewise, Joe. Great to see you. That episode was recorded on Thursday, September 7th in Liontown's offices. It's been a busy and interesting week for me. I am now in Melbourne, Australia to speak at an event here. I was in Sydney over the weekend. I met, I think, eight lithium CEOs in Perth. Ran into people from Livent and Allchem. And this morning as I was in the lounge waiting to fly down here, 
I met Alex Thompson from Albemarle, who was on his way to Liontown to uh, be part of the due diligence process. So it's a small world. I don't know what Gina Reinhardt's really up to, if she's up to anything in terms of uh, doing something that would uh, sweeten the pot for Liontown shareholders. But as with many things in... Uh, Western Australia, the drama never ends. A week ago, I had not heard of the Money of Mine podcast. I learned of it after I landed and received an email from Travis, who asked if I was interested in joining him along with Maddie and JD. Never heard of any of them. Did some due diligence, listened to one of their episodes. They were great characters and I just thought why wouldn't I want to be on a podcast like that and then uh scheduling was the tough part Shaw and partners provided us with their boardroom which is more like uh, going to a nice bar and uh if you have not listened to it you ought to check it out this episode's really done well in a little over two days and uh I probably the most fun I've had doing a podcast I also learned a new word this week in that uh, I sent the link to the episode to a friend of mine in Sydney, and he said he enjoyed listening to me talk with the Aussie Lyricans. Never heard the word Lyrican before. I think it can be perceived in many different ways. My buddy actually meant it in a positive light because he loved the episode. They cover a much broader range of topics than I do, and they're more entertaining they brought out uh, a side of me you usually don't see on my podcast which i thought was good and i would love to do more episodes with them in the future if the need uh for lithium commentary comes up in their thinking so uh shout out to you guys thanks a lot and uh i also need to give a shout out to latin resources chris gale and his team they had their 15th anniversary i had the honor of speaking at it it was a pleasure and they're doing great things down in brazil and finally to my buddies amelie and fiona from white noise communications it's always great to catch up with you too i still have five more days here i'm sure there will be more interesting things to cover and uh i will be back soon Thanks again for listening.